This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Alice Hill, co-author of Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. Known as an accomplished and high-impact leader and knowledge expert, Alice Hill offers an uncommon blend of experiences as a federal prosecutor, judge, special assistant to the president, and senior director for the National Security Council. At the White House, under President Obama, she led the development of policy regarding national security and climate change, building climate resilience considerations and capabilities into international development and other federal initiatives, and developing national risk management standards for the most damaging natural hazards. Currently, she serves as the Senior Fellow for Climate Change Policy at the Council for Foreign Relations, addressing risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change impacts, including the cascading failure of infrastructure and social systems. Alice, welcome to the show. Thanks, Beth. I'm really happy to join you. I covered only a fraction of your background in that quick bio. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in climate change? Sure. You know, like most Americans, I hadn't had a lot of education about climate change. And when I joined the Obama administration, Almost immediately after I became senior counselor to Secretary Napolitano at the Department of Homeland Security, President Obama issued an executive order. That order required federal agencies to reduce emissions or plan to how they would reduce emissions, but it also included a provision about adaptation. And when I was at the department, as I remember it, Uh, Other senior leaders did not express a great deal of uh, interest in the adaptation aspect of this order. So they looked around the table and said, oh, give it to her. She's new. And that's how I ended up taking on this issue of adaptation. I viewed it as a chance to learn more about an issue that I had only really heard about in passing on the media. I had not done any formal study, and I knew that it could be of growing concern uh, to the nation. So I worked with the Navy's Task Force Climate Change, learned what they had done, and assembled a task force at DHS. DHS, of course, is this huge, sprawling law enforcement security agency that has Coast Guard. It has FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, as well as immigration responsibilities, and of course, anti-terrorism. So we needed to ask ourselves, and this was in 2009, does the Department of Homeland Security need to be concerned about climate change impacts, that's the wildfires, the floods, the extended drought, at this time? And we were able to hear from federal scientists, academics, uh, really some of the leading thought uh, leaders in the area of climate change and climate science. And our task force concluded that we needed to care deeply. Based on that work, we did some forward-leaning reports describing some of the threats and challenges that the department would face. And I subsequently joined the National Security Council staff, where I was able to continue that work as Senior Director for Resilience Policy, as well as Special Assistant to President Obama. And 
over time, I have concluded that this is an existential threat, not only a security threat, but it's a threat to our human security as well. And you wrote this book with Leonardo Martinez-Diaz. Can you tell us how you two came to this project? Sure. We were working on an issue that had come to light that much of our development work was not yet considering uh, climate impacts. So that could mean that we're building a road that would be washed out because we weren't planning for future flooding, uh, that that road would be subject to over the normal course of its life. And he was at the time at the Treasury Department. I was in the White House working on these resilience issues. And we were part of a task force that asked us to take on this issue with others. And we developed an executive order that President Obama signed requiring all of our the nation's international development investments to be screened for climate resilience. This executive order uh, still exists. So uh, during the time, even under the Trump administration, we have seen our investments overseas grow more and more resilient to uh, climate impacts that we can foresee. And then uh, during the course of the work with Leo, we realized that there just was not a lot of focus about what needed to be done for all these climate impacts going forward, that the policy choices had not been widely explored or discussed. And we concluded that we would take the knowledge and the experience that we had garnered through our work on the issue and put it in a format that would be more accessible for those interested in how the United States and other countries, communities, should plan for, prepare for, and respond to these damaging climate events. So the first part of the book looks at systems that can make large-scale changes to our resilience. And here you talk about regulations surrounding construction, the judicial system, and the marketplace. And first, you provide some examples of major traumatic events that have led communities to strengthen their building codes like Hurricane Andrew. What were some key observations you uncovered on how and where we build? Well, the observation that is central and still a challenge pretty much anywhere in the world is that zoning decisions as well as the types of buildings that we construct are based on historical risk. That means that in deciding where we're going to put a new hospital, for example, we look at what that land area has historically experienced. Similarly, how we're going to build that hospital, we look at what type of events the building might be subject to. That is no longer a safe way to build and make land use choices. Climate change, by its very nature, will bring worsening events going forward. So if you only build to what you've experienced in the past, you're building something that could well fail just as soon as you've cut the ribbon to open. So we need to have a major overhaul of our considerations for infrastructure because it's long-lived, but also for housing, roads, other shorter-lived 
pieces of infrastructure. And the next chapter looks at the judicial system and how liability concerns can change behavior. How did your experience as a prosecutor and judge inform how you approached legal concerns related to climate change? Well, of course, uh, having been in the courtroom uh, over many years, I knew that the courtroom can be a significant lever for forcing change. We've seen that historically, for example, with the tobacco litigation, the asbestos litigation, and now we're seeing with the opioid litigation. So if the court system comes to a conclusion, it can drive wide-scale change. The challenge with that is it often takes time. So uh, looking at whether the court system or what role it will play in forcing adaptation we know it will force adaptation, but it will not be a smooth path. It'll be somewhat jerky, as we saw um, with these prior events, where it took decades before there was really a finding of liability for asbestos manufacturers or tobacco product manufacturers. And that may well be true in the case of adaptation measures. But we anticipate that as these impacts become more obvious, more foreseeable, there will be greater liability, for example, for engineers, for architects, uh, for city planners who put things in harm's way or do not recommend changes to buildings, for example, to keep them from being damaged by something that's entirely foreseeable. And this will be an evolving area. The law will be a potent force. It's just difficult to predict how it will, the specifics of how it will unfold. The book mentions several examples of lawsuits against governments related to flood prevention. I think you have the cases in Chicago, Houston, and and Canada as well. Could you talk more about government liability as it relates to flooding? The Government is typically immune for many of its decisions, and there's a reason for that because sometimes government decisions upset people, and if we allowed the government to be sued for every decision it made, we would grind, uh, our government would grind to a halt uh, because there are often people who have objections to government action. With that said, there, if there is some way that the government is no longer immune and there are exceptions to the general prohibition against suing the government. When that occurs, there can be significant impacts on government action. We actually just saw uh, this occur this month after the book was out in Houston. The reservoirs there uh, had been developed in the 1940s and uh, they were designed to hold water. And as Houston developed, they became more and more important to prevent downstream flooding. But when the Army Corps of Engineers developed these reservoirs, they did not buy all the surrounding land. And so when Harvey hit, uh, homes that had been built on surrounding areas where the Army Corps of Engineers had planned to flood in the case of an extreme event, um, those houses got flooded. And a um, court has just decided that the Army Corps of Engineers is liable, even though the Army Corps of Engineers faced a very 
challenging set of facts in that if it hadn't flooded those homes, much more of Houston would have been damaged because they kept the, the water up uh, upstream. Uh, those kinds of decisions will certainly drive government decisions going forward. For example, the Army Corps of Engineers in its choices about uh, what it does about flood works. And we can anticipate that uh, there also could be, in some instances, um, claims that governments just fail to consider the risks from climate change and allow development to occur. As I said earlier, unclear how all of this will play out, but we know that there'll be uh, rulings, and those rulings can drive action on the ground, not only by the people who are sued, but by somebody watching the lawsuit and trying to figure out how they want to be avoid being found liable for similar conduct elsewhere. You're mentioning the developers made me think of the case of litigation in the book between a developer and the city of Virginia Beach, which leads me to ask, how does the issue of liability intersect with that first lesson of how and where we build? Well, at some point, to build in an area of known risk is knowingly putting people in harm's way. And if that becomes too extreme, it could even be charged criminally. That occurred in France, where a mayor and his deputy were issuing building permits for an area called the Dome. Uh, It was an inverted dome. And in issuing those permits, allowed single-family homes to be built in an area that was extremely flooded, so people died in their sleep during Hurricane Zintia. As a result, criminal prosecutions occurred and the mayor went to jail. If you knowingly put people in harm's way, there could be liability. Similarly, failing to take action. We saw in Florida the failure to install sufficient air conditioning power in a nursing home resulted in criminal charges against some of the people running that nursing home when deaths occurred during a extreme heat event and hurricane in Florida. Going forward, uh, we can anticipate there'll be more lawsuits as more damage occurs. People are going to seek someone to pay for the extensive harm that climate change will bring, and the courts will be one way that they do that. And you mentioned the model of litigation against the tobacco industry. How does that translate to climate change and fossil fuels? I think it's going to be a difficult analogy for the fossil fuel industry. We still haven't seen in the United States any successful cases brought against the fossil fuel giants, the large companies like Exxon, Shell, Chevron, even though attempts have been made. And the courts have generally found that this is an issue for the executive branch or the legisla- uh, legislative branch, not the judicial branch, that it's simply climate change is too big. Uh, we are all essentially emitters. We're all benefiting from fossil fuel emissions. And to hold the fossil fuel companies uh, liable is a difficult fit for the body of law that we have here in the United States. With that said, just this month, the Dutch Supreme Court uh, has made a finding that its country, its 
leaders have not been doing enough to cut emissions in the Netherlands and have ordered a 25% reduction in emissions. So there is growing litigation on this front. And I think as the urgency of the issue comes to the fore, there'll be greater pressure on the court systems to step up and try to address climate change because, of course, these are permanent changes that are so damaging and and really undermine all the systems that we have in place and, and human civilization as we know it. So I think the courts, you'll see more and more action uh, by judges to try to use the tools they have to better address the challenge posed by climate change. And the next section talks about markets, and this chapter delves into issues of risk and mitigation in some fascinating ways. How do you see the marketplace shifting to cope with climate change? Well, the market in general uh, have not really reflected the risk of climate change. The real estate market at the margins has begun to reflect some of the risk, but it's a matter of when you, you have the time frame that you're looking at. Mark Carney, uh, who as of the end of last year was the governor of the Bank of England, but just has stepped into a new role as special envoy for the UN, has long called this problem the tragedy of the horizon. Because what you have are risks that permanent threats uh, or permanent changes that will occur over a long horizon decades, but choices being made now that as those changes unfold will look very poor. A great example of that is investments along our coastal areas and continuing to put infrastructure in areas that will be overcome by sea level rise. And uh, right now, our markets, you see still lots of development in high-risk areas, New Jersey, Since Sandy has had more development in areas of flood risk uh, than other areas, if you look at a picture of Miami, you know that there's significant development occurring there, even though it's widely predicted that these areas will be flooded by sea level rise. So the timeline is bit off and the markets aren't responding. There are measures that we could take to help the markets send stronger signals about the long-term risk. The second part of the book focuses on tools for decision makers, and it opens with a chapter that I think is a good transition from this marketplace and your point on what we can do differently, and that's finding better ways to pay for resilience. And in the book, you talk about traditional ways governments have generated revenue, but also some innovative ways to fund resilience programs. Can you tell us about some of the ideas that you propose? Sure. Um, uh, One way would be to take a tax on carbon uh, and start putting that into resilience measures because even if we are successful in cutting carbon, there are baked-in impacts just because of the delay of the uh, warming effect that the world will have to deal with. So we could take money from a carbon tax and apply that to building resilience on the ground. We have a lot of green bonds being issued. There's 
some question about how green these bonds truly are, uh, but we could take some of those proceeds and apply them to resilience as well. We also um, could do more turn to the reinsurance market and look at, as FEMA has done with flood on some occasions, and look at whether they can cover some of these broader risks. So in, to, in some sense, we would take traditional measures and apply them in this new context, and then we would also look to entirely new streams of finance to try to pay for what will be very costly in preparing for the type of, for example, brush fires or or bushfires that we're seeing in Australia right now, or the type of flooding that we have seen across the nation, our nation, uh, this year and in years, recent years. And what's the role of the international community in figuring out how to pay for some of these different programs? You mentioned the Paris Agreement. Could you talk about internationally what the U.S. is involved in and where the Paris Agreement stands now? Well, the Paris Agreement uh, is still intact, but of course, our recent Conference of the Parties did not make much progress. So uh, we are on a path for greater warming at this point. As part of the Paris Agreement, there was established a Green Climate Fund, and that was designed to provide substantial funding to the developing nations. And those nations, after all, have had very little to do with causing the problem of climate change. Their emissions are very low. So the idea was the bigger historic emitters like the United States and other developed nations would transfer money to developing nations to deal with the sea level rise, the fires, uh, the floods, the extreme heat that they're experiencing. There has also been uh, trouble funding that and finding the right projects for the Green Climate Fund. So Paying for all this remains a major, major hurdle for individual nations as well as the globe. Some nations are stepping forward and creating their own insurance mechanisms and looking at different ways of funding disaster response uh, that are innovative and certainly could help them have better outcomes. But there's a lot of money needed to build the kind of resilience we're talking about to these new extremes. Another issue this book covers is data, and we have more weather data than ever before. How do we leverage all of this information to get better at dealing with climate change? You were right. We are just awash in data, and that data could greatly assist us in these choices about how to get ready for climate change. But unfortunately, we face two challenges. Uh, The first is that the data is really hard to use. It just isn't in usable formats. And this is uh, particularly challenging for small communities. Uh, I remember speaking to the mayor of a small town named Perdido Beach, aptly named, in Alabama. And um, she was a part-time mayor. She Her community is facing risks from sea level rise, coastal erosion, and she wants to do the right thing, wants to figure out how to help uh, plan for and prepare for, respond to these events, 
but she has no planning staff, no one who can sit down and figure out these databases and this information and what it means. And so we don't have the translators to take all this information that we are gathering and make it widely available and in understandable format. We need to build a system of climate services, which would include not only the data, but also the translators who could help people wade through and make the right choices as they're facing increasing risk. The second challenge that we have is the modeling, and that sometimes remains uh, locked behind uh, very expensive paywalls. And so that also isn't available. So some of the data we have is based on historical risk. We know that that will not keep us safe. Of course, we need to consider historical risk, but we need to consider this future changing risk from climate change as well. And without models, it's difficult to do that. So this whole system needs to be thought through in a way that makes it accessible and usable to a wide variety of consumers of, of the information. The Government Accountability Office has had some pretty harsh words for the United States government's efforts in this area so far, and I have to agree with that uh, assessment. It is just not doing the type of job we need it to do to help communities make the kinds of decisions they need to make right now. And even with all this information, we still have to deal with the human factor. How do our cognitive biases come into play when planning resilience strategies? I have a friend who's been in the reinsurance industry for a long time. He's as chief risk assessment officer. And his conclusion at the end of his long career was that the greatest challenge we have is the way the human brain assesses risk. And I have to agree with him that uh, our cognitive biases keep us from properly assessing this really large and existential risk. So, for example, uh, we're all optimists at heart, and the polling will show that although something like 70% or more Americans believe that climate change is a risk, a far lower number believe that they are personally at risk from climate change. It's a little like uh, marriage uh, with a 50% divorce rate. Many people are going down the aisle saying, I do forever, despite the knowledge that 50% of marriages are at risk of divorce. So uh, we see the same behavior and people don't quite believe it will happen to them. And if certainly if they've never experienced it or had a close friend experience it, they tend to um, discount the risk that it will occur to them. Um, we call that availability bias. If it has recently occurred, sometimes there's even an overreaction, thinking that it will occur again immediately. Uh, but typically that fades over time, and we see people just discount the risk, assuming it won't happen to them. And we also know that we value loss more than gain. So we see many people in communities that are facing flood risk uh, from sea level rise in their homes are becoming soggy and they can't uh, keep the water out, but they're reluctant to leave. There's a huge emotional attachment to our homes and they just simply think, I can't think about losing this home versus thinking about the gain of being in a safer, drier area going forward. 
And the last section of the book goes into some of these issues in more depth. It's called The Upenders. And these are some really hard problems. How do you define an upender and how did you go about selecting what you put into this section of the book? Well, these are issues that are so big that they can have very uncertain impacts for global stability, really. They will undermine governments, undermine communities, and threaten the current situation that we have in ways that are difficult to predict, but foreseeable. One of the first ones you mentioned is the public health system. And I found it really interesting that you mentioned a link between climate change and mental health. Can you talk about the impacts on our public health system and and this connection that you found? Well, public health will be severely impacted by climate change. In addition to mental health issues, you're going to see the changing vectors of disease. So you'll see malaria infiltrating in new areas in unprecedented ways. You'll see, uh, we're already seeing the algae blooms. We've seen Zika. We are seeing the spread of um, tick-borne diseases, also extremes of heat that cause great distress um, both to humans and to livestock, all sorts of health impacts coming forward, um, including uh, cholera spread during flood, flood times of flood and respiratory issues as a result of fires. All of this, as well as the loss of livelihoods from climate change impacts, drought, causing people unable to to be unable to farm or fisheries uh, are moving north so their fishermen can no longer make a living. All of this causes great mental health distress, including from the the physical losses that people experience, loss of property, as well as just the worry of climate change. And this is, we know that during extreme events, people can suffer great mental anguish, and then there can be great stress after the event. One of the things that we certainly need to do as we prepare for these events is to anticipate the strain and stress on mental health and to make sure that our responders as well as our mental health providers are trained and understand the additional threat that they may face. Uh, there's a heightened risk of suicide. So we need to put in place measures that will help people immediately deal with uh, the great stresses that climate change brings. And you mentioned that these stressors are going to affect people differently, right? There's this inequality issue that's going to play out. And how do you see that manifesting in times of increased warming? Climate change will exacerbate inequality. It will not hit the globe evenly. There will be some countries that will see some minor benefits, uh, but some countries will be really devastated. Uh, For example, the Sahel in Africa will see huge water problems and we'll see many, many people on the move. And of course, they're at great risk during these times. So, that is a enormous challenge of uh, how do we deal with simply not having the, the mechanisms in place to assist. 
the inequality comes from uh, the inability of some of these poorer nations, uh, nations that, as I've said, did not contribute significantly in any way to the problem, being unable to address the needs of their communities. It also, within the United States, will exacerbate inequality because uh, those with means uh, can move, can find uh, other housing. Those without means may be trapped in areas uh, of great risk. We know that most Americans don't have $400 to evacuate. Uh, Under those circumstances, it's difficult for them to thrive. We also know that disabled persons uh, are at great risk during, for example, extreme heat events. Uh, They face isolation and may not have air conditioning to help protect them. All of these challenges just get worse with climate change. One thing that we know is that isolation kills. And so for uh, those that live alone, those that do not have a social network, uh, they are at great risk. In Montreal, just a couple of summers ago, had a terrible heat wave, and they had uh, additional deaths as a result of that heat wave. Much of Montreal is not air-conditioned. And they found that the deaths occurred uh, primarily among older, uh, isolated males. So we need to build social systems that address these um, real risks to various members of our community. And you alluded to this other risk earlier, but the another hard issue you talk about is relocation. How did you approach this issue of when climate change necessitates that people leave their homes? Well, climate change will necessitate leaving areas in two primary ways. Some will be slow moving over time, for example, drought. So you'll see that farmers will move when they can no longer farm in certain areas. And sea level rise tends to be a little slower over time. But they all, people will also move because of acute events, uh, a typhoon, a cyclone, or hurricane, uh, or uh, a wildfire. Uh, and that can cause an immediate displacement of many, many people. Those displacements are hard on communities. After the Paradise Fire in 2018, we saw 88 people uh, lost their lives. And then 20,000 people from that community who had to evacuate landed in Chico, California, a town of 100,000 people overnight. So that town grew by 25, uh, 20% overnight and meant the kindergarten filled up. That meant that housing was at a high premium. They already had a housing shortage issue. Uh, And that can be very unsettling for both, not only the people who have to move, but also the receiving community who simply wasn't prepared uh, for that kind of influx happening so quickly. And our book argues that we need to think ahead and identify communities that can absorb people and prepare their infrastructure and their systems to better respond to having greater stress. And the final part of the book looks at national security impacts from climate change. 
What do you think people would be most surprised to learn about how climate change may threaten national security? I don't think that most people have thought through the migration issue. We just talked about getting people out of way, but the numbers of people that will be on the move is anticipated in all likelihood to be unprecedented. So as we've seen from the events in Syria, and by the way, there was a very severe drought, 1,200-year drought that drove about a million and a half, mostly young men, from farming uh, areas into cities uh, like Aleppo, uh, and that contributed to the events in Syria and then the migration of 5 million people to Europe. We also saw how that migration stretched our European allies in their ability to deal with that. That type of migration will seem very uh, small in comparison to the numbers that the World Bank has predicted, 140 million by 2050. That kind of migration is just uh, very difficult to maintain security, human security, so human trafficking increases, vulnerability to disease increases, as well as national security to the extent that you want to keep your borders and choose uh, who's going to be allowed to immigrate. You've seen this, the pressures in our southern border are driven in part by climate change. And as much as we have a discussion of building a wall there, uh, we are not going to see that flow of migrants end going forward. So that is the most one of the most immediate security concerns, but we're going to see our military installations already. They are under um, severe threat, and that will worsen with climate change, and that's going to require huge investments going forward. And additionally, in the Arctic, we're seeing an ocean open up, uh, and that is anticipated to be ice-free in the summers very soon. And we're going to see, we already are seeing a lot more activity up there. And that could be become a geopolitical hotspot. Not clear that that will happen, but that's certainly something that we all need to be watching. So the book's full of recommendations. Can I ask you, what would be your top recommendations for policymakers besides reading the book uh, to build resilience to climate change? The number one thing that we have to do is to look forward. Uh, We have based all of our systems on the assumption that uh, looking to our past can safely guide our decisions going forward. Uh, And that is simply no longer a sound assumption. Uh, It's not a sound assumption for our built environment. It's not a sound assumption for dealing with health issues. And it's not a sounded assumption for our national security or how we handle flows of migration. We need to look at what is anticipated and projected to occur as a result of climate change and incorporate that into our planning now. That will lead to substantial changes in direction and policy and strategy. Well, Alice, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us about what you're working on now? Yes, I am uh, just now uh, starting a new book, uh, and that book is looking at the particular ways that we have found success across the world in jumpstarting climate resilience 
in looking at the much more in depth about policy decisions that drive greater preparedness on the ground. So it will look at uh, this issue that we just talked about facing forward, um, but it also looks at um, uh, how to better design uh, disaster response to address the acute events we're seeing. For example, right now in Australia, we're seeing that these mutual aid agreements that we have for responding to fires, New Zealand would firefighters would come here and we would go to Australia, just don't hold or won't be viable as we see wildfire season stretch to a year-round event. Looking at how we can better prepare now for these acute emergencies that are occurring simultaneously across the world and a whole lot of other issues. Well, best of luck with that. And thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Beth. I really enjoyed it. Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption by Alice Hill and Leonardo Martinez-Diaz is available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.